Uh, my name is David Soren. I am the lead pastor of uh, Renovation Church. Happy Fourth of July weekend. Uh, great to be outside again. Uh, you know, it's rained like twice in the last 40 days, uh, both on Sunday morning. So <laughs> it's good to be uh, outside today. You know, as a church this summer, we have been uh, studying the book of Zechariah, uh, a little known book in the Old Testament. Uh, I would love for you to get a Bible out at this point so you can see it. So if you use one of the Bibles from the Welcome Tent over there, we're on page 648. If you brought your own, turn to Zechariah chapter 5, uh, second to last book of the Old Testament. Uh, or if you're using our app, you just have Bible in uh, weekly verses. Whatever you do, we want you to do something. It's kind of a complex book of the Bible, so the more you can look at it and see it, uh, the better you're going to understand it. Uh, while you're finding your spot, let me catch you up on the book of uh, Zechariah. So Zechariah lived and uh, prophesied, ministered about 520 years before uh, Jesus, and he was speaking to the Jews who had just come back from a long captivity in Babylon, and now they're back in uh, Jerusalem. And God gave Zechariah eight different visions, and that's kind of what the first half of the book of Zechariah is about. Many of them are kind of visions about the future or just encouragement or grace, or sometimes he's just encouraging them to rebuild the temple uh, in Jerusalem, which had been destroyed. So we are doing one uh, chapter a week uh, this summer. Believe it or not, we're already on the fifth Sunday of summer. Isn't that crazy? And so that means we are on chapter five. There are two visions in this chapter, so we're going to do just the second one, which is the seventh already of his eight visions. So chapter five, now we're going to start at verse five. Uh, here's what the vision says. It says, Then an angel who was speaking to me came forward and said to me, Look up and see what is appearing. I asked, What is it? He replied, It's a basket. And he added, This is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. Then the cover of lead was raised, and there in the basket sat a woman. He said, this is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket and pushed its lead cover down on it. Then I looked on, excuse me, looked up, and there before me were two women with the wind in their wings. They had wings like those of a stork. Remember, this is a vision. Like, you ever have weird dreams? Like, there's imagery in this, okay? Like those of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. Where are they taking the basket? I asked the angel who was speaking to me. He replied, to the country of Babylonia to build a house for it. When the house is ready, the basket will be set there in its place. Okay, that makes sense, right? Okay, <laughs> it's a fascinating vision. Let's unpack it. Let's see if we can actually make sense of this interesting vision. So we're going to start at verse six, uh, verse 6 and 7. So you see Zechariah, he sees a basket. Now, this is not like a picnic basket, right? It's a large basket. In fact, there's a woman in the basket even. And it says in verse 7 that the contents of the basket represent iniquity. That's just a fancy word for sin. So in other words, the basket is like our sin. And then look at verse 8. He says, and this, this woman, this is wickedness. Now, just in case your mind went there, fellas, he's not saying that Women are wicked and men are not, right? So stop looking at your wife like that. We just had a vision two weeks ago where the guy represented wickedness. So the woman, this particular person in the basket, is just the personification of wickedness in this particular vision. And what is she trying to do? Well, she's trying to get out of the basket. And the angel actually has to kind of stuff her back in. And then they put a lead that's the heaviest of covers back on the basket. So what's happening? Well, God is removing sin from the land, but wickedness wants to get out because wickedness never wants to be boxed in and longs for the freedom to get out in a culture and deceive people and lure them into its chaos. But God's angel pushes it back down. Now, 
In Zechariah chapter 5 today, we are going to learn uh, not one, not two, but three things about sin that theologically I think are important for us to understand. I encourage you, as always, write these down, put them in your phone. The more you take notes on things, especially with the scriptures, the more you're going to remember them. So three things about sin. Uh, here's the first thing that we've already seen about sin. So number one, sin is often restrained by God or held back by God. So number one, sin is often restrained by God. And we see that where the angel is actually pushing down wickedness back into the basket. Now, how much God restrains sin in this world? I'm not sure that we'll ever really know the answer to that, but he is doing that. I mean, hear me. If God were to remove his hand or remove his angels or remove his power from this land or from a country or from a city, it would get ugly, and it would get ugly so fast. In fact, you can see this somewhat in history. Okay, listen, not every culture is the same. In history, when a large group of people begin following Christ, you see this sometimes in revival, there happens to be a spillover blessing to the rest of the culture, even if not everyone is following Christ. I'll tell you this, as a person who has traveled uh, to many developing countries uh, all around the world, I can tell you that America, for all of its flaws, and it has plenty, America has been, I would say, blessed as a country because we have a history where many people have been following Christ, and many others are kind of living in the fruit of that, of how we set up morality in this country. In fact, it kind of grieves me a little bit that so many people in our current culture are so focused on our mistakes that they miss the good, and I think a lot of people don't even realize what the rest of the world honestly looks like. Let me give an example of this. When pollsters do massive polls, not just in our country, but literally global polls, which they do sometimes, and they ask people, what do you think is the number one problem on earth? What is the number one problem with humanity? When they ask this question globally, the number one answer is so strong. In fact, number two is way far below that. It is so strong. And globally, people say the number one problem with humanity is corruption corruption in Africa, in Asia, in the Middle East, in Central America, far and away, people say the number one problem is corruption. They feel like I can't trust any business person. I definitely can't trust any government official, all the way down to the local police, to the mayor. I mean, if, the, if you want, in, in a lot of countries, right, you go to Eastern Africa or Central America, if you want something done at the DMV, you got to bribe the local DMV agent, right? Again, America is not perfect, but I'll just want to tell you, living here looks nothing like living in Haiti or living in Africa. You might have to wait a long time at the DMV, but I'm pretty sure that you've never bribed a DMV agent. And if you did, you would go to jail, right? Because we don't have widespread corruption in America, unlike so many other parts of the world, in part because God and his hand have held back wickedness at a broad level anyway for quite some time here in America. And it's not just America, right? I'm not saying America is God's new holy land. I mean, I think that... That's, that's heretical garbage, if you hear that. Okay, that's not true. There are just places around the world where people at large are following Christ, and there's a blessing in that. That's true in many European countries in history, too. But you can lose that blessing. Germany is a great example of this, right? There was so, God was doing so many amazing things, right? And then they fell from grace. I, I think a really good principle for us here is the famous verse from Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. It's in your app if you're following along there. 
where God says to Solomon, I think this really tried and true principle. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. And he will keep the spread of wickedness at bay, pushed down if they seek him and they turn from their wicked ways. But I'm just telling you, when people don't do that, broadly as a culture, they, they kind of give up on God and they say, we don't need to follow God, we're going to follow all ways. When wickedness is free to get out of the basket, there is almost no bottom to human depravity. Uh, I read a book uh, last year that, uh, actually Patrick Fessman right there loaned to me, uh, uh, about a Christian who was living in uh, Cambodia during the Cambodian uh, genocide uh, of the late 1970s. I don't know how much you know about the Cambodian genocide, but basically uh, the communist regime under Pol Pot uh, murdered and killed over 2 million people in a really short pe- period in the killing fields of Cambodia. And it was so brutal. I mean, they were basically, at the end, killing people for sport. Because there is no bottom to how evil our wickedness can become when God's hand is removed and wickedness is free to get out of the basket. But I'm just not sure that many Americans understand this anymore. In fact, one of the main problems I see uh, with today's secular non-religious thinkers uh, is their doctrine of humanity is really poor. I mean, you, you can see this in every book you read, every TV show, it seems like every movie, when they talk about people, they see people, what would you say, as basically good or basically bad? How does the secular culture see it? Where they see it as good, oh, we're, we're all good people. And I just, I see this over and over in our culture. And I just wonder sometimes, has anyone ever read this? Now, has anyone ever looked at history, right? Because when God's hand is removed, when Christians stop spreading the gospel, when Christians stop praying for their country, when wickedness is given freedom to get out of the basket, things turn dark quickly. And so we've got to learn from Zechariah chapter 5 here. We've got to pray for God to restrain sin in our land, right? Pray for that. And the number one thing you can pray for, honestly, is revival. Don't just pray for new laws and new leaders. Pray for revival, okay? We need God's spirit moving again in people's hearts. So that's the first thing that we learn about sin. God restrains and can restrain sin. Okay, here's the second thing that we learn about sin from Zechariah chapter 5. God can remove our penalty of sin. So number two, God can remove our penalty of sin. So look at verse 9 again uh, in uh, Zechariah chapter 5. So it says this, Then I looked up, and there before me were two women with the wind in their wings. They had wings like those of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. And they take away this basket of sin, and they fly it away. And they fly it away to Babylon, which is interesting, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But for right now, I want you to just focus on the fact that they take our sin and they fly it away. This is the gospel. This is the gospel, again, in the Old Testament, that through our faith, God can remove our sin, which is amazing. Because remember, verse, sin, verse 6 said that the basket is sin. It's our iniquity. And God can take away your penalty, the punishment that you rightly deserve for your sin, if you put your faith in him, that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sin. In fact, in the book of John, which is in the New Testament in the time of Jesus, when John the Baptist first sees Jesus, in John one twenty nine, it says, John shouts out, look, behold, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. In fact, the Bible tells you that if you trust in God, Psalm 103 verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions, our sin from us. And I just want to ask you Christians, do you believe that this morning? Do you truly believe that God has taken away the penalty for your sin? That he has flown it away? It is as far as the east is from the west. In other words, it's never coming back. Do you believe that? Or lately have you been thinking, no, I've been messing up. God's, he's coming for me. Punishment's coming for me. How do you think of it? If you truly have faith in Jesus, it's gone. It's been flown away. That's the gospel. That's the depth of God's love for you. Now, of course, I think we need to be careful with our language here because while God has taken away your sin, what we mean when we say that is God has taken away the final punishment for your sin. It's not saying that sin doesn't exist. So theologically, as Christians, we believe that when you make a choice to believe in Christ, what happens is the Bible says that your old self, who you used to be in your flesh, begins to be transformed into your new self. And that happens in part because when you believe, the Bible says that God gives you his Holy Spirit who comes and dwells within you. And the Holy Spirit begins changing you from the inside out. And now you have the Holy Spirit and you can call on the Holy Spirit for help and power against your sin. But lots of times our old self, who we used to be, it kind of rears its ugly head. You know what I'm saying? And you kind of have those days and those nights, you're like, what in the world am I doing? And that old self comes back. And that's the third thing that we're going to learn about sin from Zechariah number five. So if you're writing this down, number three, write this. Sin still lurks around. Sin still lurks around. In fact, look at verses 10 and 11. Kind of interesting here. So Zechariah says, where are they taking the basket? I asked the angel who was speaking to me. Verse 11, he replied to the country of Babylonia to build a house for it. When the house is ready, the basket will be set there in its place. Okay, so, so wickedness and sin, it's flown away to Babylon. Now, what's interesting here is Zechariah is written originally, the original language is Hebrew, uh, and in the original language, and honestly in a number of English translations, it actually says that the basket was flown away to Shinar, not to Babylon. Now, this is okay, so don't get worried about it, because they're actually the same place. Uh, it's like St. Paul. St. Paul has two names. Anyone know the original name of St. Paul? Ah, very good, right? I, see, I learned this uh, from my kids' fourth grade homework uh, this, this year. St. Paul used to be called Pig's Eye. Uh, can you imagine that? Like, hey, what's the capital of Minnesota? It's Pig's Eye, right? You can see why they changed it, right? It just it didn't stick. So even though the Hebrew says that they flew the basket to Shinar, some translations, like the NIV that we're reading here, they translate it as Babylon or Babylonia. And they, they do that because it is the same place, and they just think, well, you're going to know Babylon better, so they write in Babylon. But the fact that it literally does say Shinar here actually matters because it's referencing, it's alluding to one of the only other places in the Bible that Shinar is referenced, and that is Genesis chapter 11. So take a look at this. I want you to uh, either turn in your Bibles or you, it's in our app. I want to go to Genesis uh, chapter 11, and I want to read you the first few verses, and you can see the interesting connection here between Zechariah 5 and uh, Genesis chapter 11. This is right at verse 1. It says, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar. This is the same place that the basket full of sin was just sent and settled there. 
They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar from water. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. And they go on to build the infamous Tower of Babel, which is an affront to God. It's this visible image of their own self-glorification. So think about this. Out of all the places in the world that God could have removed our sin, this basket full of sin, keeping it there for a later date, of all the places, he flies it to Shinar, the very place where the Tower of Babel once stood, this very symbolic place that represents our own pride, right? Our own opposition to God. And then verse 11 says that it's flown to Shinar, and then he flies it there to build a house for it. The house is going to be built for it in the future, right? And then it'll get put in its place. Well, what is that? Well, that house is a temple. It's actually the same word in Hebrew. Early on in the Bible, you see uh, King David, for instance, he says, I want to build a house for you, God, someday. And he means uh, a temple. So what is that? Well, what's interesting here is this. Babylon, if you think about it, in history, had just been basically conquered by the Medes and Persians. So it, it almost doesn't even really exist that much anymore, technically. But the Bible says that Babylon will rise again. In fact, in chapters 17 and 18 of the book of Revelation, so we're talking like the very end of the Bible, says that in the end times, Babylon is going to rise up and be the main opposition to God and his people. Now, we don't know if that's literal or not. In fact, it could be. One of the things that's really interesting, I don't, I don't know if you knew this or not, but Saddam Hussein, uh, when he was in power, actually was trying to rebuild Babylon. Now, Google it later. It's fascinating. Uh, because Babylon is technically in what is modern-day Iraq. So it is possible that Babylon could rise again in the future. Or we don't know. Maybe it's just a, a metaphor, a symbol of the evil opposition that will come. But Revelation says that in the end, in the end times, that people will be intoxicated with their adulteries with the worldly system of Babylon. In other, in other words, people are going to worship it. They're going to be obsessed with it. In the last days, they're going to worship wickedness. And I just fear that that's where we're headed. I mean, Zechariah says, a basket full of wickedness has been set up in a temple, and people are going to the end days. They're going to worship wickedness. And don't you just fear like that's where our culture could go? I feel like in so many ways, we're beginning to not just tolerate, not just embrace, but literally to worship, to celebrate, to honor, worship what our God in so many different ways and in so many different areas calls wicked. And so that's where I think books like Zechariah, even though they're rarely read, they're helpful because they tell us what will come in the future. And I believe they're helpful to us not just prophetically to show us what will help happen in the future, but they'll help helpful to us because they show us what can happen as a microcosm in our own lives. Okay, because the Bible isn't just talking about the future, it's talking about your own life. Because if you're a Christian, yes, God has removed and flown away the payment for your sin, but as the Lord says to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, and some of you just need to hear this, if you do not do what is right, the Lord says sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you and so i just want to ask each and every one of you a question this morning are you asking god to hold back wickedness in your life to put the lid on wickedness 
But honestly, over the last month or two, have you just been letting the, letting the lid just hang open? And wickedness just run out however it wants? Because let me be honest, you need to prepare for this. I, I, if you follow Christ long enough, and I know many of you are, are new believers and you've been following Christ for a year or two, but when you follow Christ for five years, 10 years, 30 years, you're going to have seasons, okay? And you're going to have these high seasons and you're going to have these lower seasons. And in those lukewarm seasons, what happens for many of us is we don't fight sin like we used to. You know what I mean? Or we just kind of get lax about our sin. And when we're not fighting sin, what happens is sin starts to regroup off in the Babylon of our heart. When you're not fighting it, it's off there. In Babylon, it's getting stronger. It's waiting for this later attack, just like Babylon in the Bible is going to rise up again and attack in the end of days. And hear me, you don't want that experience to happen in your life. I would tell you that I think actually one of the most heartbreaking experiences, and this happened a number of times to me as a pastor, that I have seen is when I watch people in our church or just people I've known uh, in my life who followed Christ for not five years, but 20 years, 30 years sometimes, and they walk away from God. Some of you know people like that in your own life. Well, how does that happen? Well, it always starts with this just kind of lukewarm period. And what happens over time is they, they stop reading their Bible every day. They kind of get out of the habit of praying every day. They start coming to church less. It used to be every week. Now it's more like once a month. Sometimes they find a particular sin that then they start gravitating towards that they weren't doing before. And then eventually they stop even coming to church. And then they stop hanging out. They break connection with their Christian friends. Right? And then one day they wake up and they say, I'm not sure that I'm even a Christian anymore. Even though they had been one for decades. How does that happen? It's slow. It's just slow. It's the slow fade. And so one of the things I want you to hear from this passage is a lukewarm period cannot be taken lightly. But the problem is, that's exactly what almost all of us do with our lukewarm periods. We take it lightly. We go, yeah, you know what? I'm not really on fire for Christ right now, but it's not like I'm in full rebellion. And I just want to say to you this morning, if that's what you've been thinking in your head, the devil has got you right where he wants you. Just slowly backsliding into his arms. And so my, my, my brother, my sister in Christ, you have got to acknowledge today, not tomorrow, today, where is it in your life that you've just stopped fighting sin? That you're just letting it regroup? Where is it? And maybe, you've, maybe you've just given up trying to hold back gossip. And over the last month or two, your lips have just been loose as ever and you're just constantly gossiping. Maybe resentment against a family member or a relative has just been building every night. And every night you're just thinking about how much you dislike this person. You used to fight sin and you used to bring that to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't want to think that. You told me to love people, but now you just let it go. And it's growing this army in your heart. Maybe rather than living a life that glorifies God, lately, honestly, you've just been building the Tower of Babel in your life. I know a ton of Americans that get caught up in this, right? Their life focus is not about glorifying God. It's about building their career. They're trying to build up this tower so 
what, their family will be impressed? Or, or a lot of us nowadays, right, especially young people, it's like you're building your life. Your most biggest focus is online. It's on social media. You want your social media followers to be impressed with whatever hobby you have or your parenting skills or whatever you do. And my friend, this is what happens when we allow sin to regroup. It flies off. It goes to Shinar. And from the base of the Tower of Babel, it gets you thinking again about how you can put you first. And not living for Christ first, but come back to him. Live for Christ first. As the old saying goes, always be killing sin or it will be killing you. Always be killing sin or it will be killing you. And listen, you cannot kill it in your own strength. I don't want anybody to walk out of here today and go, you know what, I got to get back to this. I am going to fight so, 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 so hard to stop doing this. That will work for about 12 minutes. Okay, you need the power of God. You need, to, you need to come to Jesus and say, God, I just need your help with this. And you need the power of God's people. The more you can confess sin to other people, and that's why we have house groups. Confess sin to your Christian friends and say, help me with this. Pray, pray with me on this. That's how we grow. That's how we get freedom. So trust in him today. Trust to the one who has flown your penalty away. Trust to the one Trust in the one who can put the lead cover on wickedness and give him those parts of your life that you haven't been giving him. And I just want to say, maybe there are some of you here today that you've never done this before. Honestly, you've never turned your life over to God. I just want to tell you, do it today. Right? This is what you were born for. This is why you are on earth. God sent his son, his own son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sins, for your punishments. We deserve punishment, justice for our sins. And he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for them. And the only way to have that penalty of sin flown away taken away so that it's not on you so it's on Jesus is to put your faith in Jesus it's to repent of your sins that means turn away from the life you're living believe Jesus died for you and start walking with him that's how we're forgiven that's what the Bible teaches you don't have to be good enough right your life could be a mess but God will take you in right now and he will forgive you he will come into your life so you can know him and he will give you eternal life in heaven and it's just as simple as believing in him through faith and if you need to turn your life over to God, some of you just need to do that. Life's been just crazy. You need to give it up and turn it over to God. If you need to do that for the first time this morning, I urge you to do that. In fact, let's just let's have everybody out on the field. Would you just close your eyes just for a minute, maybe even bow your head? If I'm talking to you and you know that you've been running from God and you need to be forgiven, you need to trust that Jesus Christ loves you, that he wants to lead your life and be in your life, he wants to grab you by the hand and walk with you. If you want to believe in that by faith and be forgiven by him so you can walk with him, have eternal life in heaven, it is as simple as believing, my friend, and then walking that out. If you need that forgiveness this morning, would you just raise your hand up high, high to God and say, God, that's me. I want to become your follower. I want to be forgiven by you. If that's you, would you just raise your hand up and say, God, that's me. All right, amen. Anyone else? You just raise your hand up if you need that forgiveness. I've got to start walking with God. I want his forgiveness. I want, I want to know him. I want him to lead me. I'm leaving that old life behind. If that's you, would you just raise your hand up? Go ahead. All right. You can put your hands down. You keep your eyes closed. For, the, for those of you that raise your hand, I, we want to pray with you. The Bible says at this key moment, of our lives that we believe in our hearts, but it also says we confess with our mouths. That's Romans 10, 9 in the Bible. So I'm just going to pray a prayer. 
and I want you to repeat it out loud after me, whether you just raise your hand or you've believed this for much of your life. Would you just repeat this out loud after me? Dear God, I confess to you that I have sinned against you. But God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus to take my place. And God, I thank you for forgiving my sins. And now I commit to following you with my life. Amen. All right, church, let's just celebrate. Um, We've got people coming to Christ all morning. It's just great. It's hot out here. You guys are getting a great tan. Uh, but God is moving, and it's just it's cool to watch. So let me just uh, pray and, uh, and thank the Lord. Uh, Lord, we, we thank you so much for what you're doing uh, out here on this sunny afternoon. God, on this uh, 4th of July weekend, we pray, God, we pray even for our country. Lord, that you would hold back wickedness in our country, that you would close the lid on the growing wickedness in our culture. God, that things would be different 10 years from now, that revival would come, and that people at the bottom, if they're feeling lost and they're just turning to what they think this world can give them, that they would turn to you instead. Lord, we just ask for revival to come and for you to just save our country and move in our culture. It's your name we pray. Amen.